Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and thank you so much for being with us. In this episode, Donald Trump and his minions have big plans should he win the election next year. Trust me, you don't want to know them. At the same time, his documents trial has been set for May next year. That's before the presidential election. Republicans in Congress shame themselves yet again with their attack on LGBTQ Americans. The White House pressures AI firms to implement guardrails and new tools to police itself. And why were Delta Airlines passengers left on a non-air-conditioned flight for three hours in the searing heat? Let's get started. Donald Trump, you can't tell the court cases without a scorecard. But let's leave that aside for just a minute. A recent New York Times article lays out frightening expansion of presidential power should the former guy end up being inaugurated in early 2025. Mind you, he may also be in the middle of a couple of trials at the moment, at that moment, that is, but no matter. He and his allies plan to centralize now independent agencies and offices under the control of, guess who, the president. This would include the Justice Department, which has been a constant thorn in his side since he left office in 2021. In case you haven't guessed, this is the beginning of an autocracy unprecedented in American history. Think Orban in Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, Lukashenko in Belarus, and yes, Putin in Russia. It's not just the Justice Department that would be under Trump's thumb if he gets his way. Agencies like the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, and Federal Trade Commission, FTC, would have their independence stripped away. Even worse, career civil servants deemed not loyal enough could be summarily fired. If you think I'm making this up, here's John McEntee, a former White House functionary who's apparently helping to lay out this stunning power grab. This is from the New York Times and from the same article. Quote, Our current executive branch was conceived of by liberals for the purpose of promulgating liberal policies. There is no way to make the existing structure function in a conservative manner. It's not enough to get the personnel right. What's necessary is a complete system overhaul, end quote. Trump has proclaimed his intentions all over the place. What's troubling is he thinks most of America believes these ideas are not only valid, but necessary. Maybe the public actually does. One would hope and pray these crackpot proposals would be soundly rejected at the ballot box, but you never know. Remember 2016, when this guy first got elected president. Yet there's one thing Trump world has going for it. There's a network of conservative groups who stand ready to back his play. Many of these groups are led by former Trump administration officials who, having nothing better to do, help him concoct this nonsense. And believe me, folks, they're serious. And believe me, folks, it's all nonsense. This is the politics of victimhood taken to its logical conclusion. Trump wants to be able to exact a pound of flesh from everyone who has ever crossed him. And by the way, several of the people who have crossed him over the last two years are former allies and are in fact 
people that used to work for him. Think about that for a minute. Remember, he's already said publicly his first order of business if he gets reelected will be to order a criminal investigation into, guess who? Joe Biden. Another cornerstone of his plan involves impounding funds approved by Congress for programs he disagrees with. Congress banned the practice way back during the Nixon years. He wants to undo that particular ban. Here's the thing. This snake oil makes Trump supporters cheer, even if none of it has anything to do with how they live their lives. The Right Wing Heritage Foundation is also behind this, and believe me, they ought to know better. But when examining this stuff closely, one thing jumps out at you. This is all about the pursuit of profit for Trump and for his friends. They don't need and don't like the federal government telling them they have to keep water clean or make sure drugs are safe or even sell consumer products that are certified as safe. They oppose any and all of this if it gets in the way of profits. And those regulatory agencies have gotten in the way in some cases, not like they're unprofitable, but they haven't made enough profit to suit themselves. So they want to get rid of some of these agencies that stand in the way of making even more money. This common interest between Trump, the conservative universe that spins around him, and the sheer audacity of his proposals have one other thing in common. That is his personal power. His lust for it knows no bounds. From his perspective, it even surmounts the tangle of cases, both civil and criminal, that he still faces. One problem he now has is the decision by U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon to schedule his documents trial in May of next year. That would be after most of the primaries, but well before the general election for president. Trump's lawyers asked that the trial be postponed until after the election. The government wanted the trial to take place in December. It appears that Judge Eileen Cannon split the difference and decided on May. Keep in mind his New York criminal case is due to start in March. Imagine having to campaign for president in the midst of those two situations, plus the looming possibility of charges coming from the Atlanta area, as well as the letter Trump got last week that he said meant he may well face other federal charges. Will it ever, ever end? You know it should, with a resounding rejection of this power-hungry man at the polls. Up next... Last week, we told you how congressional Republicans tried to gum up the defense authorization bill with nonsense about banning abortion access, banning books, and honoring Confederate generals. Well, now, as I told you it would, they're going after gays and lesbians exactly the same way. This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. It's what summer listening is all about. Welcome back to The Intersection. Normally, there are certain appropriations bills that sail through Congress. The Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development Appropriations Bill is usually one of them. There were almost 2,700 earmarks cleared for inclusion 
in that bill. Republicans on the Appropriations Committee went after three of them. Now, here's the thing. You can argue whether or not there should be 2,700 earmarks in any piece of legislation. But in this case, and by the way, most of those 2,700 were put forward by both Democrats and Republicans. You want to guess which three the Republicans on the committee went after? They issued an amendment which, among other things, eliminates housing and other assistance to LGBTQ people in need. They also eliminated what they called extraneous flags at funded facilities. Guess which ones they're talking about. That would be spelled P-R-I-D-E. And they weren't done. They forbade discrimination against people whose religious beliefs set them against gay marriage. This is congressional homophobia, pure and simple. One of those fronting the amendment likened these programs, and this is where you figure these are folks in Congress, and they've gone off the deep end. And this isn't even Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bobbert, who are apparently at loggerheads with each other. One of the people fronting the amendment likened the programs to the Ku Klux Klan and said they groomed children. With apologies to Neanderthals, this is some Neanderthal stuff. The words come from the mouth of Maryland Republican Andy Harris. The 30 other Republicans on the committee had a chance to distance themselves from this hate. Suffice to say, they did not. When will this bigotry end? It's unbelievable that the LGBTQ community has to suffer a continuous onslaught of pieces of legislation, whether it be on the federal level or on the state and local levels. And the ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous notion that any program that benefits the LGBTQ community is somehow grooming kids or is somehow likened to the Ku Klux Klan, black people should be outraged, utterly outraged by that kind of equivocation or maybe lack of equivocation. It is sick as far as I'm concerned, but these are people in Congress. These are people who are elected to legislate on behalf of the American people. And this is what they think. And this is what they have the temerity, temerity to express publicly. Now, I'm old enough to remember Stonewall and the riots that took place in the gay community of New York City in response to a police raid on a very popular club called the Stonewall Inn. And I remember talking to gay people back then and the extraordinary sense of liberation they felt inventing their anger about the constant, I was just talking about 1969, so you can imagine the oppression that they experienced. And there are people who seem to want to go back before 1969, before 1969, to try and push the LGBTQ community back in time, back into the closet, back with no rights that they are bound to respect. And if people have a sincere religious belief, whatever that is, 
that they don't have to serve gays, that they don't have to end up making wedding cakes for gays or anything else for gays. They feel like that's justified. They feel like that's good on you, for want of a better term. What kind of country has this become that this is actually discussed in the halls of Congress? It is absurd, and that's the most charitable term I can use for it. Because it really talks about, see, when gay people are attacked or beaten or, God forbid, killed in this kind of environment, and then people will jump up and say, oh, no, it had nothing to do with this kind of nonsense and these kinds of amendments that are trying to snatch the rights of gay people out from under them. We continue after this break with stories about AI and Joe Biden and how in the world were airline passengers left on a plane for three hours in sweltering temperatures and no air conditioning. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. Last week, we talked about AI, artificial intelligence, and some of its dangers. I also said politicians are usually a step or two behind most technology that they would attempt to regulate or legislate guardrails or safety features into. Now, I give President Joe Biden credit. He managed to get seven leading AI companies together at the White House. The result was an agreement to manage the risks that could potentially come from misusing this very powerful technology. The seven who came together and agreed in spite of the cutthroat competition among them are Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection, Meta, Microsoft, and OpenAI. However, President Biden's remarks after a meeting with the septet last week sounded a little bit formulaic. Quote, we must be clear-eyed and vigilant about the threats emerging from emerging technologies that can pose, don't have to, but can pose to our democracy and our values, end quote. The companies did agree to guardrails against the misuse of AI, yet you have to wonder how long they'll last as these companies slug it out to develop and refine new forms of AI, as it is, the technology can do some frightening things that even they may not be able to control. Their complicity with the Biden administration is an effort to get ahead of regulatory policies they may see coming down the road. There's also, by the way, the issue of hacking, as evidenced by reports that the Chinese government organized hacks of Microsoft's emails. They were going after private emails of U.S. officials who were dealing with China. Will the agreement stop or slow regulation of AI or even legislation requiring transparency among these same signatories? My guess is uh, probably not. What would possess an airline to keep people stranded on a plane without air conditioning for nearly three hours? And that depends on who you talk to because some people say it was as long as four hours. The U.S. Department of Transportation 
wants to know. Yes, this really happened. The airline was Delta. The flight, 555 from Las Vegas to Atlanta. It sat on the tarmac in Vegas as temperatures there hit 114 degrees. Where was the air conditioning? Seems like nobody knows. They're investigating that. Several people reportedly fainted, and even some of the cabin crew took sick. Now, lengthy delays when stuck on a plane happens now and then. It happened to me once, returning from JFK, uh, returning to JFK Airport from Haiti. We sat for over two hours while airport people tried to find us an operable gate to disembark. Some regulations or some kind of bureaucratic nonsense kept us out there and people were inarguably and justifiably upset. Fortunately for us, I guess, it was during the winter. In this case, which happened at the beginning of last week, it seems no attention was paid to the fact that there was a deadly heat wave and passengers on a sealed airline without air conditioning were bound to become, at best, uncomfortable. The Transportation Department requires airlines to provide comfortable cabin temperatures during tarmac delays. Beyond that, there are limits as to how long a flight can stay stuck on the tarmac. That seems to have been exceeded in this instance. Half-baked apologies like the one Delta preferred in the wake of this incident are simply not good enough. Financial compensation was reportedly given, but how did the Harry Reid International Airport say it was unaware of the incident? And the final indignity? After that flight, Flight 555, was canceled because several members of the crew took ill along with passengers, it was moved to 7 a.m. the next morning. And then that flight was canceled too. And how long will it take Delta to finish its investigation and the Transportation Department to finish theirs? Who knows? Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.